Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. And I'm very glad to be here, and I'm very glad you all are here. For those of you all who are here as new people, you don't know, but I've been gone for almost a month, and it feels like a really long time to me. I'm glad to see your faces again. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. I was sitting on a plane next to a priest on the way from Dallas to Austin, and we passed the time talking theology. He was great, a great guy. And um, we got to talking about whether God is in everything or God is separate from everything, and he said, I think that's what separates Christians from the Unitarians, since you all, don't, you all say there's a spark of the divine in every person. He said, we think God can be in a person, but it's still just God and separate from the person. And I said, well, it's a little different for us. He said, I know. Um, And I can't go there with you, but I can almost. (laughs) So anyway, we believe there's a spark of the divine in every person. And so let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to our right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. I'm Margaret Borden. Our call to worship this morning is from William F. Schultz. Come into this place of peace and let its silence heal your spirit. Come into this place of memory and let its history warm your soul. Come into this place of prophecy and power and let its vision change your heart. I get asked most recently on the plane from Dallas to Austin, what do you all worship? You all call yourselves Unitarian Universalists, and yet you have people with roots in most of the major world religions and some of the minor ones, neo-pagans, humanists, even atheists. How do you preach to this group? We had a long conversation, but one of the things I said is that our mission is one of the things that holds my particular congregation together. We have it written on the wall in the sanctuary, and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning is from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. 
For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. This is the time in our service where we breathe together deeply into that place in our heart where we are who we are. We bring our doubts, our fears, our hopes, our worries, our lives, our whole lives into this room. We don't ask anyone to leave anything outside the door. And we breathe down past all of that to a place of stillness. The stillness is the antidote to frantic motion, to being overwhelmed, to being confused. We ask for clarity and wisdom and peace. Let us enter the silence together knowing that small child noises count as silence. I don't know about you, but I've been watching the news and feeling pretty overwhelmed. The Middle East, the brutality there, our part in arming Israel again to fight with the Palestinians some more. Knowing that we were talking about arming rebels in Syria a couple months ago, and now they turn out to be these people who are being even more brutal than Al-Qaeda. Glad we didn't arm them. It's as if we removed a brutal dictator and then struck a match and just watched the area explode. And you know, when the thought crosses your mind that perhaps it's the brutal dictator who kept relative order in the region, uh, maybe it's time for some deep reflection. Going back to basics. And when you watch the news from Ferguson and you think, I worked for so many years to recognize and heal my own inner racism. And I watch the personal racism of so many people, the things they say. Uh, and by the way, if you want to start or continue recognizing and healing your own racism, we've got a, an intensive workshop, September 5th through 6th, right here. Uh, a good number of people are registered already, but none of them is from this church. Forty dollars and includes three meals, and so let's talk about racism. Uh, it's wonderful to have the privilege not to have to think about it, and yet um, making yourself think about it is a good way to identify with people who don't have the privilege of not thinking about it. 
So you work really hard to heal your own inner racism, and then you think, you know what, even if everybody, all those people making comments on Facebook and all those people on the news networks making comments that are so incendiary and so unbelievable, you think even if all of those people had no personal racism left, we'd still have the institutional racism that is most of the iceberg in the banks, in the schools, in the courts, in the police, in capitalism in general. It's all rooted, tangled up with racism. How in the world do we begin to address that? And when you know you're starting to feel like screaming, preaching, prophesying about it all the time or else just lying down and giving up, it's time for some deep reflection and going back to basics. And when you see your government talk about defeating an ideology with airstrikes, when you know, and everybody knows, that airstrikes and violence are the way that people are recruited into this ideology and it fuels the ideology and it makes it feel more righteous and more um, like, a, like a righteous victim and, and people adhere to its precepts more strongly when there's violence. Uh, how do you even defeat an ideology? How do you even talk about defeating an ideology? I can't defeat the ideologies in my own family by uh, fighting with them or even arguing, even gently speaking in a civil manner. My ideology is not going to change when they speak to me in a civil manner. Why should I expect theirs to? Um, I'm not going to escalate to airstrikes because you change somebody's ideology just by wiping them off the face of the earth. I, I, don't, I don't understand the thinking there. And so it's time to go back to deep reflection and basics, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. What are the basics? I believe that ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tse talks about the basics when he says, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. And if there's peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. And what I know about peace is that it's not quiet, necessarily. Peace is not nothing happening. Peace is not everybody sitting around knitting or whatever. I'm sure knitting is wonderful. It makes me surly, but I'm sure it's good for a lot of people. Peace is hard work, and peace is dynamic, and peace is birthday parties, and peace is families and friends at dinner and in the pub, and peace is um, activities, and peace is community. And peace of any kind starts with peace in the heart, and how do we even do that? So today I want to talk about how people try to do that, and how people um, from... Lithuania to Reykjavik to uh, Romania to Nepal make sacred spaces. And from the Congo to Guatemala to Detroit, we make sacred spaces. We have churches and temples and shrines, and we have framed prayers in Arabic, and we have 
mosques and we have um, little altars in our houses where images of the gods and goddesses are and we feed them with flowers and, and fruit and milk and honey or we, we make altars in our homes where we make our prayers concrete. Um, I'll talk more about that in a minute. People make sacred places and have since ancient, ancient times. In Scotland, there are circles of standing stones. In the West, there are petroglyphs on the rocks, medicine wheels. The First Nations people, the native people say everything is sacred, and yet there are still holy places. This is a holy mountain, and this is a holy medicine wheel, and this is a place where we descend into the ground and pray. Um, There are lots of ways of trying to make your inner experience concrete. One of the books that I've read uh, recently is called Roadside Religion, and um, it's by a religious scholar, a man who shares a hobby of mine, which is studying the, the edges, the fringes of religion. On the front cover of his book is a photograph of these rust-red steel girders um, in a kind of a strange shape, and there's a blue and white sign right in front of the girders, and it says, Noah's Ark being rebuilt here. So he's a religious scholar. He's married to a Presbyterian minister, and in the summer, their hobby is they load the kids in the car and they go see these roadside um, things in the United States. So they visited Holy Land, USA, in Virginia, the Golgotha Fun Park and Biblical Mini Golf in (laughs) Kentucky, Noah's Ark of Safety in Maryland. And he writes very affectionately about the imagination that creates a place like this. He says, these places are as deeply personal as they are public. At the creative heart and soul of each is a religious imagination trying to give outward form to inner experience. So the question arises, what does sacred mean? And everybody knows sacred comes from the Latin word sacer for set apart. So sacred means set apart in some way. But what sets something apart from the everyday sacred? What makes one place or an object holier than another How do people know where to set up the standing stones? How do people know where to put a temple or what is a holy field and what is not a holy field? Or um, different theorists of religion express it different ways. Emil Durkheim said the answer is sociological. He says the sacred is that which symbolizes and indeed creates the social and moral coherence of the community. It's that which a social group sets apart to represent and create unity. French philosopher Georges Bataille says the sacred is that which is experienced as radical otherness. That is not me, that is something else, something other. Representing a realm of animal intimacy that threatens to annihilate the social and symbolic order of things. Now, I think that mostly the people who talk about annihilation are mostly French. I don't know. Maybe it's the cigarettes or the beret. I don't, but when you want to talk about nihilism, you want to have a French accent like Pepe Le Pew. My French accent is terrible. And for anyone who's actually French, I deeply apologize. 
I stopped trying to imitate the Scottish brogue. I realized it was just irritating the crud out of everybody. For a historian of religion, Mircea Iliada, the sacred is wholly other, but he focuses on the religious person's experience of the sacred as an experience of transcendence, of being lifted up, of being lifted out of your ordinary experience. He says the sacred is where you encounter the holy, where you feel awe, where things have a flash of making sense to you, where you have a feeling of connection that is larger than yourself, when you suddenly have new information that makes a shift inside you and things are different now. So is that, is that moment of connection, that moment of transcendence, that moment that we seek, that we try to invite, we make a fertile field for it to happen by having community gatherings for worship, we, we sing, we have quiet time, we think together about certain things, we have readings, people go on hikes together, they raft on rivers, they tour museums, we have conversations, we try to make a place where that moment of transcendence can happen and let you can't control it. Rabbi Jesus said the spirit blows where it will, it's like the wind, it's you know, here one minute and over there the next, you can't make it happen, but you can make yourself ready to receive it. You can be on the balls of your feet, ready to, to have it hit you if that's what you need. And so making and finding sacred spaces is one of the ways that you can be ready, that you can remind yourself that there is a mystery, that there can be these moments of aha, these moments of transcendence where you might learn something. You might change something that needs to be changed. I used to um, go to a Presbyterian church because my husband was the minister there. And every now and then I would walk down the hill from the church, way down. This, was a, this is a church that was founded in 1770-something. And um, it was Cherokee territory. Down in the woods was a spring. And it would get... Uh, leaves in it sometimes. So I would go about once a month and clear the oak leaves out of the spring and you could just see it burble up out of the ground. It was cold and clean and miraculous to me. And I felt the peace of that place. I felt drawn to that place. I felt like I had a responsibility to my spirit to go there. So that was a sacred space for me. And was the spring itself sacred or was it just me? I don't know. And a lot of places... um, are holy for reasons that we don't understand, but a whole people have said, this is the place we're going to put the standing stones, or this is the place we're going to make the medicine wheel. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll see the churches that are built on the place where Jesus was born. You'll see the church that was built on Golgotha, the, the hill. You'll see the per- where Jesus was crucified. You'll see the, the churches that were the various uh, places, and then you'll see the different Protestant um, places. The Protestants say, no, 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 that wasn't there. It was over here. Um, the original places, the Catholic places, were found. You know, you start to ask yourself, well, how do they know that this is where he was born? How do they know? Well, the, and you do the research, and you find out the way they know is that Constantine's mother, the Emperor Constantine, who was a Christian, his mother, 
um, she went walking around Jerusalem, and she would say, I have no idea what her voice sounded like, she would say, I feel that it was here. This feels to me like the place where he was born. And they built the church. I don't trust that. So I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that we can tell by feeling, you know, you go and it's like, ooh, I just felt of that place. Maybe. A lot of people go to Sedona and they feel the of the place. Now there's a word for the so you don't have to keep saying that because it feels weird. Um, people call it juju or people call it mana. The, the scholars of religion call it mana, that spiritual energy that is imbued in places or objects. Certain thing has mana in it. Is it that thing, like in Indiana Jones, you know, the the Ark of the Covenant? Does it have holiness in itself, so that if you touch it, you die? Um, or is it just the love of the people, the connect, the spirit connection of the people that made it have that power? Is it the spirit connection of the people who who bring flowers to the place where someone was shot or? who make roadside crosses and flowers where someone they love was killed in an automobile accident, is it, it's their love that makes that place sacred. It, in Ferguson, um, there was a group that went to a place that had been destroyed recently, and they set up tables and had a barbecue there for the community. To me, that's making a sacred space. That's a way to make a sacred space. You have food, you have community, in a place that is a wasteland. There are kids who imbue their stuffed animals with so much love that the stuffed animal itself has mana. So that the siblings, who are always horrible, not always, maybe it's just my, maybe it was just me. Um, <laughs> you can make your little sister do anything by kidnapping her stuffed turtle and saying, you know what's going to happen to this turtle? I never did this. You know what's going to happen to this turtle if you don't? I never would have done that because I had a bear that was like that, and she would have totally had retribution with my bear. But those objects that you love, a wedding ring, you know, in the beginning of um, the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, you see the camera pan over these little objects that were in Scout's box of treasures. Those things have mana. So what I'm saying is, um, in your home, or in your yard, or in your life somewhere, it would be good to have a space set apart for your spirit. A place where you have a little pile of stones that reminds you of something that happened, or a flower, a candle. Um, Some people have a dish of water right by their front door. They dip their fingers in the water like holy water to say, I'm now crossing the threshold of my home and this is a sacred place. Or you'll have an altar to make your prayers concrete. You'll say, I want clarity, so I'm going to put my grandmother's glasses on this cloth, and I'm going to put a candle and, and, and ask in a concrete way that my brain, different part of my brain will understand. I'm going to ask in a concrete way for the clarity of my grandmother's wisdom to come to me. I had a friend who, um, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to quit. I had a friend who um, wanted to be rich, 
and did a, a spell, an altar for being rich. She wrapped up a $10 bill in a ring and put it on the, ca- in the, on the altar and lit a candle. And um, the next day, she said, it's totally working. I'm, I'm rich. I said, what happened? She said, I realized you know, I have a washer and a dryer right in my house. And I have hot water that comes out of the faucet when I just turn a handle. And I have a place to take a bath. And I have all these clothes and, and a roof over my head. And I'm just so rich. So the altar worked in a way. Because she suddenly was rich when she hadn't been the day before. So a sacred space in your home that you create reminds you that you are a partner with the mystery in inviting it into your life and in reminding yourself that you're not a work machine. You're not only a family caregiver. You're not only a lover or a partner or a spouse. You're not only a mother or a dad or grandparent. You are part of the mystery. And you are bringing peace, which is a dynamic, soul-growing enterprise. Please say with me the, the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Peace, salam, shalom. 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 Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.